WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. And now, Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman, and you are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. This week on the show, we take a look into the recent protests against police brutality here in East Lansing and talk with some of the protesters about the greater issues. We'll also hear from a chaplain who says that her church, contrary to the stigmas, is pro-LGBT communities. But first, we sit down with the head of MSU's Geography Department to talk about the award-winning film about global change's effect on Cambodia that will be screened this week on campus. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. Right now we're sitting down with Dr. Arbergast, the head of the geography department here. Yep. Um, and we're here to talk about uh, A River Changes Course, which is a documentary, right, that's going to be screened here on campus? Yes. We are having a special showing of this movie, A River Changes Course, uh, in association with our Geography Awareness Week celebration next week. This is something that we do every year. Uh, some kind of big event like this that's uh, uh, that we promote on campus. A couple of years ago, we had a film called Chasing Ice about melting glaciers around the world, and this year we're hosting uh, this movie, River Changes Course. The cool thing about it is that we have invited the director, uh, the creator, director, and producer of the film, uh, a woman by the name of Kaliani Mom, uh, who will be here to present the film and then be uh, present afterwards for questions and answers for the students and people who come. So this will be screening uh, Thursday, November 20th at 7 p.m. at uh, Wells Hall, uh, room B115, right? Yep. It's open to the public. Um, we'll have a bit of an introduction at the beginning uh, where Kaliani will, I'll introduce her, and then Kaliani will introduce the film, and then uh, the film will show, and then she'll be available for Q&A afterwards. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the film. The film. Um, it follows three Cambodian families, right? Right. And... Uh, their kind of struggle to maintain their way of life through a changing environment and, uh, you know, the kind of the modern surroundings, right? You bet. Have you seen the film? I have not. I've seen a trailer of the film. Uh, I've read about it. And, um, um, you know, my sense of things is that what's really interesting about it is that Kaliani uh, was a Cambodian refugee from the Khmer Rouge era back in the 70s. If you know anything about that, it was a very dark time in Cambodian history. It was sort of related to our own involvement in Vietnam. Uh, and uh, the, uh, in the post-Vietnam era, the, uh, uh, the Khmer Rouge took over Cambodia and, and uh, you know, genocide prevailed. You know, it was pretty ugly. Uh, Kaliani's family uh, immigrated from there. They got out, wound up in New York somehow. I don't quite remember the details there. But then in the late 80s, she was curious to see what Cambodia was like. Um, 
how perhaps it had changed from her childhood, just, you know, the kind of thing that you and I might be curious about, you know, from our hometown, what it was like when we were kids. Um, so she went back and she was struck by how fast things had changed. And one thing that she noticed was that the impact of globalization on the Cambodian society, you know, the traditional way of life for a lot of people was being crunched by the big changes that we're seeing globally these days in the economy. You know, deforestation, big time corporate fishing, you know, those sorts of things. And how the uh, the Cambodian people were trying to uh, adjust to those big changes. So she will be um, present for the viewing yep. and afterwards for a Q&A. Yeah. Okay, that, that'll that be a pretty um, interesting experience because, yeah, she sounds like she has very deep ties with this whole thing. Um, um, and I also I, I listened to a uh, uh, NPR interview with her, yep. and um, yeah, no, she sounds like a, a very interesting person. Have you uh, uh, you know talked to her at all, or um... no, I have not talked to her. Like you, I have listened to her interviews, and I've seen a little bit of her on YouTube, uh, which of course you know didn't exist back in the seventies. Right. But um, yeah, I mean, she sounds very engaging. Uh, she seems very cool. Uh, I've worked with her agent or handler, if you will, and uh, it's been it's been a piece of cake putting this together. She's interested in in getting involved with the students as much as possible. She's going to guest lecture one of our classes. You know, she offered to do that. Uh, so yeah, I think she's really interested to make a connection with us and describe how uh, what her ties to Cambodia are like. Now, this is a part of the world that we heard a lot about uh, back in the seventies you know, Vietnam, Cambodia, Southeastern Asia. And then it sort of drifted off of our radar, you know, in the past 20 or 30 years as, as that focus went away. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a good microcosm for the kinds of changes that are glo- going on globally right now as, as the modern world in, encroaches on people. You, you said last, last year you, during this event you uh, selected one about glaciers, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, you're kind of sticking with the in- environmental theme. Um, what, what I, n- I noticed this film won, I think, a Sundance Film Festival Award. It did. Um, you know, what, I guess, what else kept it on your radar for, uh, you know, films to try to get here? Well, you know, geography is, is not a discipline that's well understood. Uh, people have a tendency to associate it with maps and simplistic things. What are the capitals of the states and so on? Uh, you know, it was two years ago that we hosted uh, Chasing Ice. Uh, last year, we had a fellow here by the name of Chris Jordan, who's an environmental artist, and he talked about um, you know, consumption uh, globally, and specifically focused on the plight of the albatross in Midway Island out in the Pacific, and uh, how their parents, the mom and dad, uh, the adults of the uh, of chicks are going out uh, into the ocean, they're feeding, and they're bringing back plastic that they think is food and feeding it to their young, and unfortunately the young are dying in, in catastrophic numbers. So he talked about that quite a bit, and it was very compelling. This year we're hosting the film. What we're trying to do is to demonstrate the breadth of geography. You know, two years ago it was strictly, uh, largely environmental, you know, ice. I'm a physical geographer. I study sand dunes. Uh, But we also have people in our department that study uh, human health, um, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, Medical geography is very popular these days in a growing field. Uh, We have people that are working in digital technology. Geographical information systems and remote sensing. So the sorts of things that we're trying to do for our Geography Awareness Weeks every year are designed to demonstrate the breadth of the field. This year, it's largely focusing on human-environment interactions. You know, two years ago, 
uh, it was more on the physical side. So yeah, it's just it's uh, it's to show the range. So what do you think? Um, this this film in particular, um, it's you know focusing on these three families as they struggle with the kind of globalization and modernization around them. Um, what do you think uh, can really be taken away from this film? Like, what do you, what kind of important um, message do you think this film might be trying to get across to its viewers? Well, you know, one of the things that I talk about in my own class, uh, I have taught many times the dreaded ISS 310, you know, people in the environment, everybody loves their ISS classes. But, um, you know, we're, you know, we try to, uh, to discuss in those classes, you know, how, Events that are far away that are that are impacting people can we have some part in? Now I don't mean that in necessarily a negative way. Um, you know, one of the things that I do is I ask the students to to uh, uh, look at how much of the stuff that they have with them in class is made in China or Southeastern Asia, and they're always stunned by how much of of, of their own personal belongings are made there. So the world is an interconnected place in many, many different ways and profoundly. And one of the takeaways I think here would be, okay, there are, you know, people who have been living a traditional lifestyle for centuries in Cambodia, right? The world is getting more connected. Uh, It's getting flatter, if you want to use the Tom Friedman terminology. And the things that we're doing here, the things that we buy here, the decisions that we make here do have the impact on people a very, very long ways away. Um, so that would be one takeaway. Another takeaway would be that, you know, folks that watch the movie will get some appreciation for the beauty of Cambodia and, you know, what it's like there. And even though it's, you know, halfway around the world, it's a pretty cool place where people are living lives and they're trying to do those things just like we are. Yeah, yeah, and I I did end up watching a, a good portion of the film, and um, maybe you could tell even from the, just the trailer that you know uh, she kind of captures a lot of intimacy um, with these families, very right. very uh, personal um, kind of images, and yeah, they're really really beautiful. Um, you know what what do you think uh, these kinds of really intimate uh, you know situations that you can be put with these families? What do you think this can do to to kind of help this cause? You think this will well, for one thing, you know, when you describe intimate relationships between people in Cambodia, how is that any different than the kinds of things that we deal with here with our own families and loved ones? You know, so uh, we're all concerned about uh, living good, uh, happy as we can make them lives here in the United States, which, of course, is a very commercial place. Uh, there are people on the other side of the planet who are very, very different than we are in terms of their culture and their traditions and whatnot but yet they're struggling with the same kinds of things that we do. So I think, you know, at a fundamental level, it connects us all in that way. And I think that would be something that would be taken away from the film. Yeah. Um, Almost, almost ironically, the uh, globalization is, you know, giving us something to relate to and maybe uh, come together in the end. Yeah, for sure. You know, and and again, back, you know, when I was young and, and, uh, you know, I grew up in the in the 60s, and, and I remember the, uh, you know, the tail end of the Vietnam War and Cambodia and all of that, you know, it seemed like a very, very far away place then. In many ways, it might seem even farther away now because we hardly ever hear of the place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in the context of globalization, it's even more connected, uh, profoundly more now than it was then. Yeah, well, uh, what, what kind of things are you looking to accomplish with the uh, geography department here? Yeah, we're just trying to raise awareness. Um, 
again, like I said before, you know, geography is a poorly understood degree. Um, you know, I was at a function last weekend in another state, and, you know, I met a guy, a prosecutor. We were at some kind of thing, and, and you know, he was stunned to learn that that uh, we were teaching geography at a major Big Ten university. You know, and the first thing he said was, and this is a really intelligent guy, the first thing he said was, uh, don't they, don't all the students know the capitals of the states by the time they get to college? You know, and that's just such a simplistic view of what we do. And we are working really hard to promote geography as a viable degree uh, with lots of excellent job opportunities uh, in a variety of different fields. You know, we have people that are working with satellite imagery and air photo interpretation and health medical geography and human environment interactions. Um, and so we're trying to get the word out that, this is, that we are a good place to go uh, with excellent faculty. If you want to get out in the field, you know, and look around and, and, and touch things and think about where they are and why they have why they got there, then we're a good place to be. And so this is one of the ways that we're working on promoting that. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming. You bet. It's always a pleasure. That was Dr. Arbergast, the head of the geography department. Um, you can catch the film A River Changes Course this Thursday, November 20th at 7 p.m. Wells Hall B115. Now, we know that the church has had a hard time accepting LGBT communities, but this chaplain is trying to change that. You're listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. Right now, we're sitting down with Chaplain Sarah Midzelkowski from the One Community Campus Ministry. Sarah, we're, uh, we brought you in here today to talk about the LGBT community and its place with religion. Mm-hmm. Um, so what your church has a has a stance, maybe an unusual stance, maybe it is usual with LGBT communities. Um, I, as an Episcopalian, um, um, we have had since um, well for a couple of decades now um, a pro LGBTQ people stance because we are a pro all people of God stance. Um, since two thousand three, we have. Uh, been ordaining men and women of all um, sexualities uh, to the priesthood. Um, I work with an ELCA congregation here in East Lansing, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America congregation, and I serve both Lutheran and Episcopal students and all students here at State. The ELCA has had a, uh, a policy of um, being pro-LGBTQ Christians as well, and they are in the midst of changing their policies towards ordination 
and towards same-gender marriage, as are Presbyterians, as are United Methodists, as are many, many different what we used to call mainline Protestant denominations. And so um, I am in a place of real excitement as all these churches around us, as these organizations around us, are starting to stand on what I consider to be the side of justice and love for LGBTQ people in our midst. Okay, so you think a lot of the churches in this in this area, not even just this area, a lot of churches around the nation are kind of making this shift right now. Yeah, and it's been happen- happening uh, over probably the past 20, 30 years. Um, uh, probably... Um, there are some churches that have had it, you know, have been open for a very long time. Uh, there are many who are closed and will remain closed from for the foreseeable future. But there are many of us who are um, moving forward joyfully and standing on the side of love and humanity and um, the free expression of uh, of love for all people. All right, so you mentioned a little bit about um, gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, does your church have a stance on that right now? The, in the Episcopal Church, we have uh, prepared and uh, passed rites of blessing for same-gender relationships. It is not called exactly marriage, and a big part of that is because, of course, marriage is bound up in civil law. And so to be able to enact blessings upon these relationships, um, our church felt like we needed to not have marriage within the title so that we wouldn't put people in a bad place of, uh, of having to do uh, a ceremony that went against the legality of what was going on in their state. We are, as a church, though, on record as supporting same-gender marriage legally within the United States, and many of us are active in marriage equality organizations around the states where we live. Okay, so then if gay marriage was legalized in Michigan, your, mm-hmm. your church would most likely, in, in, in theory, mm-hmm. uh, you know, start uh, participating in? Yes, in fact, we are already, um, there are many of us who have already participated in same-gender blessings within our churches. Um, that's always to be uh, in consultation with our bishops, uh, but also um, in consultation with our specific churches. One thing that is a misnomer, because people tend to think that once you allow gay marriages, all of a sudden you have to, quote-unquote. I don't have to marry anybody. I can turn down any couple who walks into me and says, we'd really like to get married here for a host of reasons, but that is left up to my discretion as a minister. It's the same with any minister in any church or any um, rabbi in a synagogue, any imam in a mosque. None of us have to marry anybody, gay, straight, or otherwise. So it is still left up to the discretion of the individual cleric as to whether or not you're going to do this um, service, do this marriage. what this does, though, is it expands, it will expand the rights for LGBT couples to be able to um, marry and get the civil rights that straight married couples get. All right. Um, 
You said that your church was pro LGBT communities. Mm -hmm. um, besides gay marriage, which we just uh, touched on here, what what other things does that include? Being pro LGBT. Well, one of the first things it includes, of course, is uh, recognizing uh, faithful people within our church communities, uh, within our houses of worship, who are LGBTQ. So recognizing them as children of God, as worthy of love, respect, all types of pastoral care, as being possible candidates for ordained ministry so that they can become leaders within our community, um, as being... Um, people who will fall in love and want that love recognized and blessed by the church, uh, as people who will um, have children either biologically or through adoption uh, and want those children raised within the love and care of the church and their, their uh, experience as parents supported by the church. Uh, baptisms happen uh, for LGBT couples and their kids. Um, so what, what we are recognizing is there's an entire host of um, care and attention and pastoral experience that needs to be paid, that should be paid, that must be paid to LGBT folks who have been hiding because we have pushed them out of our sanctuaries for far too long. And there's a lot of work to be done to make up for that. Are there LGBT persons within within your church, I suppose? Yes. Uh, in the churches that I've served, I mean, frankly, there's going to be LGBT people in most churches and most congregations just by the law of averages. Uh, whether or not those folks are out about that, that's, you know, up to them and, frankly, up to the churches and congregations who uh, may welcome them. But, yes, in the churches that I have served here, there have been not only LGBT folks in the parishes, but also LGBT clergy that I have served with and have been just so fortunate to call as my colleagues, as well as LGBT um, students who have been in the campus ministry that I have served, leaders, um, some who have been called to ministry uh, in their own right, uh, some whom I've been so blessed to be able to perform marriages for, and uh, now some, of course, I'm old enough now that they're having babies as well. And so we might be baptizing some kids here at some point. So, Very cool. Um, so I'm looking at the uh, Municipal Equality Index, which is a, uh, uh, you know, a kind of uh, evaluation of these cities that they've been doing around the nation. And East Lansing scored a 100 very mm -hmm. recently. Um, and yeah, this is including a lot of laws, uh, non-discrimination laws, relationship mm -hmm. recognition, uh, municipal services, uh, law enforcement, things like that. Um, do you think that churches like your own are um, kind of adding to this kind of community that we're creating? Um, we are. I think part of it is that it, it coincides with um, legal recognition and sort of the social consciousness being raised in a community um, because church members are also school board members are also doctors lawyers teachers police uh, they're civic-minded people and so at the same time that a civic consciousness is being raised for to promote the civil rights of a group that has not had civil rights given to them um, that same thing is occurring within our churches as well, 
as we raise the consciousness of um, understanding, um, as we raise our awareness of the lack of pastoral care that folks have gotten and the hidden populations within our churches. Um, I wish, most of us wish in the church that we would lead in such things, but very often, unfortunately, we are uh, the tail behind the dog. We wind up getting there much later than we should, Uh, but I hope that uh, we are being called into a time where we can be, again, leaders in proclaiming God's love to everybody. Um, Do you think that being around a college campus, a very kind of you know, young, liberal college campus, is um, helping to allow you to, you know, uh, come out and say that, you know, your church is pro-LGBT earlier than a lot of other churches, maybe? Absolutely. Um, and a big part of that is just the fact that you've got a huge, diverse, changing population constantly shifting um, who come to your area And, um, you know, this campus is, for any campus minister, your congregation. And so there's a real sense of uh, loyalty. There's a real sense of pastoral care. There's a real sense of prayerful desire to help meet the needs of the faculty, staff, and students here at MSU in whatever way we possibly can. Because of the diverse population, that means we have to be on our game. Uh, Any Um, faith group has to know about the issues that are happening, has to know about the the ways that not only people communicate technologically, but the views that they bring in. And this is a place of learning. It's a place of creativity. uh, It's a place that has a real undercurrent and beat and impulse uh, to be stretched and grow and move beyond boundaries. And that affects every single house of worship uh, in this community for the better, for the better. So what would you say to um, a church that is maybe not in the same community, um, doesn't have that great diversity to really kind of uh, uh, embrace that, you know, hasn't said quite as much as being pro-LGBT? Mm. Um, you know, what, what would you say to them? Mm. Well, the main thing is to keep listening for God's Spirit Um, because very often in places that are closed, remain closed to LGBTQ folks and the blessings that they bring with them. What uh, folks are realizing, what they're um, doing is they're turning a blind eye to the folks who are already in their congregations. There are campus ministries, there are congregations here in this area who do not, uh, who are against LGBT um, uh, equality, who have LGBT members. They do not recognize them. Uh, They try and keep them hidden. And it's not a safe space for a lot of people, but they stick there. They stick with it, which is always remarkable to me. So to the leadership, I would say, keep your spirit open to what God might be doing in your midst. Because the minute we think we have it all sewn up, the minute we think we understand everything, is the minute we're being challenged on all those assumptions. To the LGBTQ members and folks in those communities, I say, as long as you feel called to be there, be there and be who you are, and know that you are loved, and know that you are worthy, and know that you are valuable to God. But 
if you feel threatened, if you feel you are in danger, know that there are places who want to welcome you with open arms for everything in who you are in every way that you want to love and be. And so there are communities that want to welcome people uh, into their midst. All right, thank you. After the interview, she mentioned a documentary screening happening this week, a film created by students here at MSU. Q Cross Campus Ministry, uh, which is a, it is queer Christians reclaiming their spirituality and sexuality. And it's a group of students who are both LGBTQ and Christian, Christians of all stripes. They produced over the last year a documentary. Um, I was invited to be a part of that, which was an amazing experience. That documentary is uh, going to be shown for the first time publicly this Saturday at 7 p.m. at First Presbyterian Church downtown. Everybody is welcome to that. It was produced here at MSU. MSU students were involved throughout the entire thing as well as being produced in the lab here. So I just want to put a shout out for that. There's been a growing distaste for police brutality and racism around the nation in light of Ferguson. Even here in East Lansing, students have been taking action and speaking out against it. No peace, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace, no justice, no justice, no justice, no peace, no justice, no justice. Um October twenty second. Um, all across the nation, there's actually actions um, protesting police brutality and the lack of police accountability. There were actions happening all over the U.S. and hopefully elsewhere. Around 10, there was a banner dropped from um, Bessie Hall, that uh, like out one of the windows of the stairwells, like a big, it was about the size of a bedsheet, and then it said, indict Darren Wilson. And then at noon, two more banners were dropped. Um, one of them um, from Wells Hall um, that said uh, Solidarity from Ferguson to Palestine. Um, and then the, the third banner was dropped from the CATA station on campus that read um, Student Power is Back, Join the Global Movement. Um, so a bunch of different students from all over campus, some of them were part of organizations um, like NASO, the BSA, MSU Students United. All during the day, folks were, there was maybe um, 20, 20 or 30 folks um, 
distributing leaflets um, between classes and handing them out inside their classrooms and stuff like that, um, as well as spreading the word on social media. So then um, when we um, when 3 o'clock came, which is when we decided to meet at Beaumont Tower. We all met up behind Beaumont Tower, and there was a lot of conversation going on for a while, and then um, by the time I parked my bike and showed up, there was like chanting, different chants going on, like no justice, no peace, no killer police, um, hands up, don't shoot, whatnot, a lot of those. And then um, we quieted down, we did the mic check to make sure like everyone was listening, and... The organizers try to take into account um, everyone, every like how the group felt and sort of um, how people were feeling about the action. And um, we basically came to a consensus to uh, march both in the street and on the sidewalk in a way that would make sure that everyone um, feels comfortable and is comfortable with the level of risk they're taking because um, it's possible to get arrested for marching in the street. So we made sure people were aware of that. Um, we did the standard jail support procedure in which you, if you have a risk of getting arrested, you write down um, someone who, like a safe person's number uh, in pen on your body because when you get arrested, they take um, everything out of your pockets and stuff. So then you can make your one phone call to the jail support person. We had demands that we wanted to take to the East Lansing Police Department. And the idea was to meet in a big group behind Beaumont Tower and then march in whatever way the group decided to the East Lansing Police Department and deliver those demands. Um, everyone was told to wear all black. Um, that's a, a tactic that the organizers came up with to make it seem like a unified group and not just um, uh, make it seem like a unified whole and not just random people, I guess. Um, and I think that worked pretty well. If you look at pictures of it, everyone's wearing black. Um, it has a nice effect. Um, whoever was speaking gave everyone in the crowd enough time to decide amongst themselves like what they wanted to do. Um, me and myself, like I always run around to different groups of people talking and new faces and be like, hey, what are you thinking? What kind of stuff are you down to do? Or what kind of stuff are you like, that's a little risky, kind of worried about that. And then like I always like say that I'll speak up for whoever may not want to speak in front of a large group of people because there's some people that have a really valid point and they just have never been in this setting before. Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's good, I feel, to give them a voice if they don't want to. But so a lot of people were like, I'm worried about marching in the street because Noah, who spoke earlier, said that that's an arrestable action. And the police officers said to them verbally that day before the march that um, you could be definitely arrested for marching in the streets. We definitely recommend that you do not do that. And, well, in the big group of people we decided we were going to march in the street so some people started war marching on the sidewalk at first but then everybody ended up pretty much in the street we war marched down um, west circle in front of the library down and around uh, farm lane and then through the intersection of farm lane and grand river yeah and then the route we took was through campus down um, past the broad art museum and then we turned and we're basically taking over the two right lanes on Grand River, marching west. While chanting the entire time with, felt like maybe 50 to 100 different signs between 100 to 200 people, the news said. I didn't really realize that there was that many people. And at this point, we had probably grown to around 200 people. Um, 
folks had joined us when they when we marched by them, um, which was a nice thing. Uh, and some of the chants we were saying, um, hands up, don't shoot, which has sort of become the anthem um, as Mike Brown was murdered in Ferguson while his hands were in the air. We marched all the way down. We got people to like look out windows of stores. We got cars honking at us. Got students and bus stops like, what's going on? And probably people passing out flyers among, along the street as we were there. Um, we got to the police station and we like all like swarmed in front of the front of it. And then we had, well, we were chanting a little more and then we had some other students speak on the topic of police brutality and on the topic of the Mike Brown incident. And a lot of people had very inspiring, like touching things that they were saying, really strong things that they were saying. We also, then we did made a, a decision by consensus at that point as well. Um, on whether folks wanted to just deliver the demands and walk out or deliver demands and or, or the six demands that we had and then um, occupy the space in, inside the police station. And folks mostly wanted to um, go in, drop off the demands. Everyone, or there was about 50 copies of the demands that were turned in and people, folks signed them as they turned them in. In a huge line of people, just one by one, walked into the police station's front door and handed the secretary at the front, well, the secretary police officer person at the front window all the copies of the paper. And that was our way of saying, well, we gave you enough copies of it, you should be able to read it. So definitely take your time and read through it. And then we regrouped outside and uh, we wanted to speak to the police chief. And while we were waiting for that to sort of get um, squared, squared away, uh, Folks came up, we opened up the floor for um, people to do brief speeches about how they were feeling um, about the day and about the state, uh, state of police um, in East Lansing and in whatever communities they're from. And we also held a, a four and a half minutes of silence. As a group, we once again had the option to, what do we want to do now? And so the group overall decided that we all want to go inside and see what the chief of police had to say. So we went around the back, and everybody filled, just piled right into the police station, the East Lansing Police Department. It seemed like a really powerful day. A lot of people were pumped up and felt like we got a message across that something needs to change. But then there was a few opportunities I had to be like in the center of the march, and it was a really powerful feeling. Um, everyone like uh, chanting in unison, um, demanding justice for, um, for Mike Brown and for police accountability in our own community. Um, I, I, I was really powerful, um, and I know some other folks um, that hadn't had never been involved in any sort of activism before came away from that event and felt really empowered. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty cool feeling to like be in that group of people all um, coming together um, and really like showing our bodies and like taking up that space in the street from, for a unified purpose. It's kind of a, it's a nice feeling. Um, maybe a week or two after that event, um, we were going to hold have a demonstration um, on a Wednesday evening um, following the uh, uh, the Black Power Rally, which is an event um, organized by the Black Student Alliance. It was extremely amazing, by the way, the Black Power Rally. Extremely powerful. Um, that uh, demonstration turned into us a rally outside Warren Center that turned into a, um, a General Assembly-style meeting 
in which we made plans as a large group. And we ended up deciding an action to do. Originally, it was kind of thought that we were going to do a march that night, but the police station was closed, not a lot of people on campus, it was kind of chilly out. So in the big group of people, everyone was shouting out their ideas, brand new voices and faces were talking, and it was just wonderful. Um, Noah spoke briefly about um, all the different types of actions we could do, um, everything from marches to rallies outside of all different kinds of buildings to writing a petition to planning a new action in the future. Overall, we decided that we should plan another action on another day where more people can show up and we'll have more of like, more of like a voice coming at them. So it was November 13th on a Thursday, this past Thursday, the meeting at Beaumont Tower for the official march to the East Lansing Police Department. That was at 7 p.m. It was pretty cold and it was snowing. So it was um, very dark and cold at this point. Um, and marched slightly smaller group than the first march. Um, but spirits were as high as far as I could tell. Um, and marched to the police station and once again... Um, a few of the organizers led the march and we started chanting. We had a good amount, good list of chants. My favorite chant was definitely the who shut down, we shut down. Because it was uh, fun to say and I thought it was very empowering. Between, between these, two, these marches, the police had rejected all of our demands. Um, at least... Yeah, basically rejected all of them. They gave us like some statistics that were vague. So that didn't really answer one of our demands. But yeah, so that we had, and then we, in a similar symbolic manner, um, that event turned into holding a vigil outside the police station for four and a half hours while they refused to um, speak to us and, and uh, gave us like real valid reasons why they couldn't even meet the easy demands like the body cam, um, the body camera demands. Um, so yeah, four and a half hours outside the police station, um, same amount of time Mike Brown laid in the street. And everyone was surprisingly really okay with the idea of staying outside in like really cold weather until, uh, 1130, which was really awesome that, that just seemed like something that everyone was very enthusiastic about doing. And so we didn't, you know, you know, people were chanting and doing jumping jacks in attempts to stay warm, uh. It felt really strong to just stand there and knowing exactly what we're doing and why we're doing it. No justice, no peace, 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 no Pacify, taking soul where you are. Doesn't make sad too, but it won't be long. Cause kids with guns, kids with guns. Easy does it, easy does it. They got something to say.
I found two of the organizers of these protests and asked them to come into the studio. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. Right now I'm joined with Crystal Gauss and Noah Saperstein to talk about their uh, uh, recent adventures with the ELPD. How are you guys? Um, Tired? It was a long night? It was a long night, but I got McDonald's this morning, so I think I'm doing okay. So last night you were where exactly? Um, last night we were first at the Beaumont Tower, and then uh, with about 30 other folks, we uh, took a march to the East Lansing Police Department. Um, we were out there until 11.30, um, four and a half hours from when we started at 7, um, and that was in a symbolic remembrance of Mike Brown, who, when he was killed by uh, Darren Wilson, uh, his body laid on the street for four and a half hours before they collected it and uh, stuffed it in the back of a, of a truck. So this has been going on for a little bit. You guys have been um, gathering people who are upset with the, the way police have been acting and kind of all around the country um, in light of Ferguson. Um, and you've been kind of taking this to a local, bringing it to the local attention, I suppose. Uh, so what it, what have you guys been doing in these past, uh, what has it been, like uh, three weeks, four weeks? Going on four weeks. I think we, uh, yeah, about four weeks now. Um, and mostly what we've been trying to do um, since then is to organize ourselves a little bit better. Um and form some type of, currently we're operating under the name um, COPPO, uh, which is Committee for the Oversight Police Officers, um, and we're trying to form, um, form plans with that to better address police brutality, um, both in East Lansing and as a systemic issue. Um, so, yeah. Um, both of you went down to Ferguson um, prior to this. Is that right? Mm-hmm. What'd you guys uh, experience there in Ferguson? Um, it was uh, very serious. Um, what I've been telling everybody is it wasn't as intense as I was expecting. Um, personally, I was expecting tear gas, rubber bullets, things like that. Um, but when we were there, it was a very unique time. It wasn't like every other night. Um, when we went there, it was a big weekend. It was the weekend of resistance. Thousands of folks were in the city. Everyone was out every night. Um, people being out at night isn't un- unusual or, you know, out of the ordinary since the shooting of Mike Brown. Um, but what was different was, you know, we had multiple, you know, quote-unquote mainstream news sources with us, you know, bright lights, cameras, the works. Um, so we didn't really have any violent police altercations. Um but yeah, we definitely saw the police repression. Um, we saw police in riot gear every night. Um, one night, you know, people were getting pepper sprayed at a location. Um, Moral Monday, there were over fifty arrests. Um, yeah, um, I think the weekend we went down, a, a lot of big names were there. Um, actor Jesse Williams, if you know him, he was in the crowd. Um, Cornell West was there on Monday, more on Monday and ended up getting arrested um, along with uh, a lot of our other clergy folk. Um, but while Noah, um, probably it wasn't, what, what, what's the phrase, your first go at the rodeo, your first <laughs> your first round with it, that was that was my first time um, seeing police in riot gear outside of like 
sporting some sporting events um th- this is the first time gas I, stations. <laughs> I gas stations um so it was it was terrifying for me but um life-changing in a way that made me feel really uh empower empowered after coming home you know it's like i know we were there for three three days four days um a relatively short period of time there are people out there every night the same people um who are constantly fighting, but I, I felt like I walked away with this, this passion um, that is gonna stick with me. I've always, of course, been, um, I don't know if the phrase is into police brutality, but where police brutality, uh, brutality and angered by it um, since I was like a, a kid. I remember I grew up in Cincinnati, um, and in 2001 they had race riots over the death of Timothy Thomas. Um, and I remember going downtown with like my family uh, and like looking and being a part of those protests. And this was my, the first time I felt like I I could actually do something about anything um, when it came to systemic injustice. Um, and that was, yeah, that's what I walked away from. So when you got back to East Lansing, um, felt pretty empowered. You saw a lot of injustices there. You were mad, right? Um, so what, what was your goal when you started doing this? What did, what did you want to get done? <laughs> I think the, um, the goal of it was for like one, we wanted to raise awareness. Um, we wanted to kind of give firsthand narratives to folks about what we'd seen there and what was going on because a lot of people are reading news sources that are really unreliable, um, Two, we wanted to pass on that feeling of empowerment to other folks who were upset about it. We wanted to let people know that, hey, police brutality is real. Um, it's part of the the system to make you feel paranoid and to make you feel that uh, people who are speaking up against it are are like are, are crazy, for lack of a better word. But no, it's happening. It's happening now, um, and it's happening all over. So we wanted to bring that to light. Yeah, and especially in East Lansing, um, you know, a lot of folks, you know, they think of police violence, police brutality as something that happens in New York City and Harlem and Oakland and Ferguson, um, simply because we don't have rampant assaults by police on citizens in East Lansing. But we have a lot of other forms of police harassment in this city. Um, driving while black's a big thing. Um, they just had a $35,000 lawsuit for excessive force. Um, so we don't have police shootings every day like in other cities. But, I mean, police harassment and police violence is a real thing. Yeah, um, even uh, police harassment that goes unreported is really big just because there isn't that trust with the system for a lot of people of color, black people especially, to report incidences in which they are harassed by cops you just kind of choke it down and like it's a part of life and we want it to not be um, to not be okay. Yeah, and even if you look at, you know, the arrest records compared to the population, East Lansing is, you know, about 10% black, whereas arrests, you know, you're looking at 18 or 19% of arrests are black people, um, which is extremely disproportionate. And, you know, it's not just like black people commit twice as many crimes as white people. That's yeah. asinine to think. Yeah, wow. Um, you guys started off and you had that, that, that first big protest. I was there with you guys. Um, 
you had uh, over 100 people, right? Um, over 200. Over 200 people. Um, you marched down Grand River, and you went to the police station, and you read some demands, right? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you said earlier that uh, they were fined a lot of money for being using excessive force, and um, was it was it that their excuse was for not getting body cams? Was they didn't have enough money? Yeah, um, they looked into getting body cams about six months ago. Um, the settlement for the excessive force came out in March, so this would have been you know a couple months following that. Their own independent research said it would cost between thirty-seven to thirty-nine thousand um, dollars. So that's you know just a few grand more than the amount of the lawsuit. Um, and yeah, the lawsuit's a one-time expense. That's a uh, something 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 poetic about that. The can't afford poetic injustice. <laughs> All right. Um. Uh, so yeah, you guys were protesting. Um. And uh, you've you've been how many marches have you had so far? Um. This was only our second last night. We had uh we had a march to the UPD. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then uh, were there any other um events besides marches? Following the first march, we had a town hall um, as a means to get community input as to how to proceed next. Um, following that, after the Black Power rally, we had an impromptu rally slash town hall um, because, yeah, the first town hall, folks wanted to have some sort of action. Um, we pretty much found out that, you know, we weren't going to have enough physical support to do what people had wanted to do. Um, so we pretty much changed it up at a town hall, and that's where the last night's event came out of. One of the other things, I, I think you had mentioned that, you know, some people might not think East Lansing has, you know, police excessive force issues. Um, but one of the things I kind of realized um, during that, that first protest was uh, that kind of just by adding to the amount of people, you know, upset with the amount of police force, uh, you know, you're kind of making a lot of difference right there, right? Um, I think there was tweets and, and uh, other social media devices all showing around the nation all of these other protests against police brutality. Um, would you say that's one of your goals, too, to just kind of uh, add to the uh, growing discomfort with the amount of force the police use? Uh, yeah, I, definitely. Um, we it, – it just so happened um, that all of our marches have been on bigger days of action. Um, like the event yesterday was happening on the Michigan Student Day of Power. Um, so there were things happening in, I think, Grand Mizzou College, Grand Valley Uni- uh, State University, U of Central M, Michigan, Central, um, um, Mary Grove, happening all over. And like just to have our 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 voice have an input in something bigger is also. Um, also a goal that we like to... Um, the first march was on the National Day of Action Against Police Brutality. Um, so, you know, that was going on while hundreds of other cities had similar actions. All right. Um, where do you guys want to move from here? Um, obviously, you guys have a lot of planning to do on your own, but if there was something you wanted to uh, kind of let people know, uh, where, where do you guys stand in this issue? Um... We are trying to organize, 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 and get things together. Um, we are working on meeting with uh, several city council members. Um, I actually am 
coming from a meeting um, with the city council member this morning, um, talking about strategies we can use to get funds for the body cams, um, and also trying to figure out um, how to implement more uh, education for the police department on um, diversity and anti-oppression and um, historical uh, historic uh, police brutality. Um, yeah, so yeah, we're still trying to figure out 100% our goals, but like we're working on a lot of things right now. All right. Um, and then I guess finally to wrap up this interview, uh, why do you guys think uh, out of out of all the issues that, you know, I, I'm sure you guys are both involved in here on campus. Um, why do you think this one's, you know, one of the biggest issues? What's what's the most important thing about this issue? Personally, I wouldn't say it's, quote-unquote, the biggest issue. Um, I don't think you can really measure and compare different forms of oppression against one another. Who's to say that police violence is a bigger problem than rape and sexual assault in East Lansing or on campus? Who's to say that um, drone strikes overseas attacking children in Gaza is a bigger issue than rape or police violence, you know, in the United States? Um, I would say that the reason that we're doing this is because it's a real problem that we can implement change on. Um, and then you can, you know, take away from the fact that we went to Ferguson, we saw what it's like, um, and that really, real, that really showed it that, you know, People deal with real things, and you know, East Lansing is its own little suburban college bubble. Um, for myself, it's it's all of that, but it's very personal too. Um, I am a black person. I have a black family. I have black friends. I care about black issues, um, and what is happening uh, to black people in the United States is disgusting. Um, it's un it's not right. Um, it's an injustice, and if I feel like I can help in any way, um, and it, this just so happens to be the way I feel that I'm able to help the most right now, um, then I'll do it. So, All right. Thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you. That is uh, Crystal Gauss and Noah Saperstein on their fight against the ELPD and police brutality. You're listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. Thank you for joining me tonight. You can find this episode of Exposure as well as all other episodes of Exposure on our website, impact89fm.org. Special thanks to our station manager, Gabriella Saldivia, and general manager, Ed Glazer. I've been your host, Quinn Hoffman, and this has been Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. 89 FM.